Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you'll take out those notes that are found in your weekly bulletin, it's going to aid us this morning as we do a little bit of study. And uh, don't let those notes intimidate you as if you're not here when I alluded to it earlier. Probably is going to be broken up over two weeks of our time of study together. So you look through four pages and you're thinking, when well, we're never going to go home. Uh, as there's a clock, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it. So we'll be able to stay right on track as we walk through this. Our theme, as we've been going through several weeks now at the church, is uh, this morning is church discipline. And uh, you begin to think about it, I'm sure there's probably a variety of thoughts and images that are conjured up that come to mind when you hear the word church discipline or the words church discipline. Um, if you're like myself, I understand the theological concept. I've just never seen it accomplished before. I've never seen it actually materialized in a corporate assembly. I've never seen it actually followed through uh, to where this process has been had and has been brought to even tell it to the church. A variety of levels, I think I've seen it accomplished clearly one-to-one, uh, and then bringing witnesses in. But then the third Fasted to tell, tell it to the church, to inform the church, and then the church's response and how they would then pursue the, the believer, the supposed believer. Um, never seen that accomplished. And yet you may be one that in your, in your history of, of church involvement, your history with the other local assemblies, you may have seen it uh, accomplished. And you may have seen a very negative model of it accomplished. Or then, you again, then again, you may have seen very, very positive uh, models that have been uh, and examples that have been uh, lived out before you. And so with that, I, I know there might be a variety of things that come to mind. I know also as we talk about this and the very word discipline in of itself, that many of you may have homes that were difficult to live in. You may have had father figures or stepfathers that uh, were in your life that were very abusive or very domineering. And mine have claimed Christianity, but their lifestyles demonstrated anything but that. And so when you even hear the word discipline, you run as if it's something negative and something harmful. And so I know as we come to discuss a topic like church discipline, there's a variety of fears. There's a variety potentially of insecurities or a variety of uh, unknowns that are, that are not tangibles for us to be able to walk through potentially in a variety of this room. And so our goal this morning is just to simply unpack what the scripture teaches as we've gone through this a lot i know uh when we first started this series I, let me say this kind of just back up and kind of help us where we're at i know many were thinking i mean we've studied this stuff before we've talked through many of these things before but i i'm, I'm hearing as we've now allowed an opportunity for this to be discussed the week after the teaching there's a lot of a variety of good conversations happening and the amazing thing is, even though I think early on people were thinking, man, this is just repetitive, this is repetitive. As we've gone to now uh, more newer information, that I think ultimately that it's, it's created even more questions that we've had. And so I think it's been a very helpful and profitable study for us to be able to go through. But as we, as we walk through this, our goal is, is simply that as even new information is being unpacked, you think, well, what's your agenda? What, what are you out to accomplish 
Let me just kind of just say, speaking of previous messages that Pastor Tim and I preached, speaking of the present message that I'll be preaching today and, and subsequent messages that will be preached after today, our goal is simply this, to just allow the Word of God to speak to the family of God about what the instructions are in the corporate assembly of God. It's not making any demands or making any expectations or any clarity to things that we desire to do or not desire to do, other than we just desire for to be able to teach and instruct and inform you of what the Bible says, our expectations, our commands, our demands, our commendations that would come from the Scripture. And so as we teach this morning, I simply want to do that, that yes, at some point we desire to obey what we're teaching, but it's going to take some time to even get our documents in order. It's going to be tied to our Constitution and bylaws that we'll be continuing to talk through as we move toward that in September. But ultimately, simply this, not expressing anything more or anything less than trying to attempt to be intentional and biblical to what the text says about these fair variety of topics from a corporate assembly last week to the one another commands the preceding weeks before that the general responsibilities of a church member that preceded that and so on and so forth our goal is simply to say thus says the lord and that's all i desire to do today so let's dive into our notes begin to answer some of these questions as i said we'll probably get through maybe two pages of our our notes and and I think it would probably be a, enough for us to have a, be at an uh, accurate stopping point for us this morning. But uh, as we look at church discipline, uh, the agenda is just to be able to try to answer some questions. And so the questions are listed there to help us to be able to discern and determine what it is that God would expect of us and to maybe alleviate some of the concerns that might be there. So opening question is, what are some common questions and concerns with church discipline? So what are some common questions, maybe even objections and concerns with church discipline? And so I'll begin to just list a few of those there for you. Number one, uh, church discipline. Is it unloving? Church discipline is unloving might be a question that you were posed with. That it's, it doesn't seem to be very loving that we're uh, speaking to other people and confronting sin to them. And this thing, even the word discipline, that how, who are you to discipline me? Well, this is why we want to take our time to be able to make sure that we are teaching through what it means to be a local gathering, what it means to be a local assembly, why membership would be important. What, what is it? Who are we? Why are we even gathering? What does this mean? Why should there be accountability? Why would we want to gather together? Is the local assembly even biblical? Or do we only see the universal or the every known believer on the planet constituted as the church? And, I, and, I, and Or do we see the local assembly? So we've been trying to answer these systematically as they kind of build upon each other so that we can helpfully teach what the Bible is teaching and to be able to instruct on whether or not this is helpful or fruitful. And so one of the questions becomes, is this unloving? I think we have to at least address church discipline as a whole. And is, is uh, discipline in itself uh, something that's beneficial? And, and just write this down. I'll read it for you, but just write this down. You'll be able to read through this week. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. We studied this before we started the series as we walked through the book, entire book of Hebrews. But the Bible says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That was only verse 5 and verse 6. You can continue reading verses 5 through 11. But we see pretty quickly, though, to be able to say discipline in and of itself, and the church discipline would be unloving, would go against the very character and nature of God, who he, he himself disciplines. And he says he does that because he loves us. Same imagery could be seen. So the answer, a common objection, common question, potentially common concern would be, it's church discipline and loving. The Bible would speak that it, it's a very picture of what Christ does to us and that he might even utilize the church to do so. 
Second question in, a common question or concern, or maybe an objection is church discipline, is it legalistic? It's just legalism, man. There's this church, and man, you, you guys just think you're doing it right, no one else is doing it right. Man, we're, we're quickly becoming pharisaical. We're quickly becoming just like the Pharisees of the Old Testament upon one of the strongest rebukes and the strongest words and statements that came out of Jesus' mouth was for those religious leaders. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, Matthew 23. And I mean, is this this what we will become if we implement something like church discipline? Is it legalistic? I would say no, it's simply just obedience. We had read to us moments ago, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, walks us through. Even prior to the church's inception, its creation there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, you see Jesus teaching his Apostles, Jesus teaching his disciples about church discipline and how to confront sin. And I believe it's loving and I believe it's just simple obedience. Number three, what about church discipline? Is it judging others, right? We begin to look at passages like Matthew chapter 7. And doesn't the Bible say somewhere like Matthew 7 that uh, verse 1, as we look at the text, judge not that you, you, that you be uh, not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? How how can we perform church discipline and not abuse this particular passage where it speaks about judging not? I think it's simply just that we're judging others. Well, first, you'd have to tie that particular passage together with passages like Matthew 18. And this was right out of the same gospel. Matthew was the author of both passages, Matthew 7 and then again in Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, and instructs disciples, instructs the church and in how to handle sin and how to confront sin. And so I, I believe it's not judging others. But if you keep reading, even in the context of the same passage, I'd read Matthew 7, 1 through 4. Listen to verse 5, and I think it gives us some insight to what he's saying. He says, you hypocrite, first take out the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think the imagery here is the judging is this prideful uh, attempt to be judge, juror, and to be God ourselves, and to be able to say and judge potentially motives of individuals. All throughout, even in the, the same context of the Sermon on the Mount, he has, he's speaking to the, the body of Christ, and as you continue in chapter 7, that ultimately we should beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he says in verse 16 of chapter 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. Well, how in the world could we ever recognize them by their fruits if we're never ever be able to judge based upon what the Word of God says should be uh, a, a behavior of a sheep versus behavior of a ravenous wolf? It's not about judging the motive. It's about judging the actions that the Bible speaks. And so he says, well, first of all, make sure you clarify, make sure you, you remove any hypocrisy in your own life that you might have that same sin. Be humbly, gently coming toward a brother or sister in Christ and then rebuke them, confront them with their sin. And so I don't believe it's judging others whatsoever. Which then leads us to our last question. Is it a loving? Is it legalistic? Is it judging others? And is it biblical? Is it biblical? Well, I think... Yes, Matthew 18 speaks to that. I think you see other passages, 1 Corinthians 5, and a variety of others that we will touch in our study. But uh, I think that will just lead us to our next question then. If the answer whether or not it's biblical or not, then leads to our next bullet point. Do we see examples of discipline in the Bible? 
That'll help us, will it not? To be able to see other places in Scripture where the Bible teaches whether or not uh, discipline happens and how it's performed. And so let's look at the Old Testament. Does the Old Testament uh, demonstrate any forms of discipline? And I say yes. You'll see uh, a variety of times. Number one, you'll see discipline that God performs. Discipline that God uh, performs. You go all the way back to the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 10, the the, uh, sacrificial system is being implemented. And you see the sons of Aaron. Let me just read to you what takes place when the sons of Aaron desire to uh, bring sacrifice before the Lord. This is what it says in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Just imagine that. They're coming to worship sacrifices before the Lord. And they did it in a manner that God did not command. In a manner that God did not prescribe. And God killed them. Oh, God disciplines His people. And you see what Moses communicates as the prophet. God Himself saying, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be set apart. I will be holy. Don't just come to me in any manner you think you can You come to me in the manner that's prescribed. This is why we want to be so careful. Not legalistic, not judging, not unloving, but careful, biblical. That's why when we begin to speak, I know it generates a lot of questions. We talk about uh, how we desire to do things. And some of those may be foreign. And maybe you've not seen it, as Paul says, do as you've heard and seen. Right? You might say, I've been a variety of other churches and I've never seen this. And so we, we want to go back. And that's why we just want to be very, very clear that we're just simply doing what is commanded. And you think, well, does that mean there's no room for us to do other things? I know you've probably heard Pastor Tim or myself in conversations be able to say things. And here's a typical conversation. Does that mean are you anti this or anti that? If he says or if Pastor Tim or myself begin to say, well, hey, nowhere in Bible is it commanded. Let me, let me bring a caution to you. That doesn't mean we're against it. Let me do bring a clarity to you. It simply means that we don't want the demand behind it. It can be demands that we pose as questions. But they're actually demands. And all we want to be able to say is, listen, we're not saying we won't do it. We're not saying we're even against it. All we're trying to say is, does the Bible command it? And if not, may it generate then healthy, holy, humble discussion about whether or not it's feasible, it's beneficial, it's profitable. But by no means are we wanting to say, man, the Bible commands it. Or that we're not a healthy church if we don't perform it. Does that make sense? And so if you begin to hear it, I don't want you hearing when we, we pose, hey, does the Bible command that? All we're trying to do is make sure that what appears to be a question isn't a demand. That's all we're simply asking. Do you see it prescribed in Scripture? And if not, then let's not make it a demand. Let's put it in the category of preference. And then we can have reasonable conversation about whatever that topic may be or may not be. And that's simply all that we're posing and discussing. And so here you see Nadab and Abihu 
approaching God in a manner that God did not prescribe, and God performs discipline in their death. Well, any other disciplines that God performs? What about Uzzah? 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Here's a beautiful picture where the Ark of the Covenant is being moved, desires to make its way to Jerusalem. They've been instructed for it, how this thing's supposed to be able to be transported. And, and the reality is the Bible had spoken of how you're supposed to interact with the Ark of the Covenant, the very mercy seat, the very presence of God that would be in the Holy of Holies, the, the tabernacle. And so you begin to see that they didn't, there was these poles that had to be slid through these circlets, these ringlets that were attached to the Ark of the Covenant so that an individual would not touch it because God is holy. And this is where God's presence was on earth. And so as a manner, here's how you would, you would transport it. You would slide the poles into the ringlets and they would then hold onto the poles so that the actual Ark of the Covenant was not touched with human hands. As you begin to see here, it says that, we'll look at verses 6 and 7. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, what had happened? They put it on a new cart. They didn't transport it the manner upon which God said, this is how you're supposed to transport the ark of the covenant. I'm sure it was an elaborate scene. I'm sure it was probably a beautiful scene. Ultimately, they wanted to showcase the Ark of the Covenant and, and praise the Lord. And you begin to see the praise that was associated with this. But the reality was, despite all of their, in, their sincerity, despite all of the praise that accompanied it, the praise was for naught because it was not done in the manner that God had prescribed. And so the oxen stumble, the cart begins to shake, the Ark of the Covenant looks like it might roll off. And Uzzah, even out of good desire, says, man, I don't want the Ark of the Covenant to land in the mud stretches out his hand to steady it, and God kills him. For all the worship pastors that are out there, we can't just lead people to praise in any manner we want. Here's the one who's known for praise, who's written, written more psalms than anybody knows. We were looking for a worship pastor, and we, we love Jason, by the way. He's sitting there going, of course you'll preach that when I'm down front. But as we talk to worship pastors, they'll begin to talk, and talking to us, they'll begin to communicate these, these things. And they'll say, well, even one was uh, pretty angry at Pastor Tim and I as we were talking through the things of God. And they asked a question to, to us, and he was directing the question to Pastor Tim, and he says, well, if you can only... If you can only name one characteristic of God to be able to find all that God is and, and was and is to be, tell me what that one thing would be. Pastor Tim, just steady, even kill as Pastor Tim is, looks back at him and says, holy. And he says, that's the problem with you guys. I would say love. How does God demonstrate his love apart from his holiness? What is love if you don't have a standard of what is set apart? And so I told this story to that young man. I said, you're going to lead people to worship God. Let me tell you, you'll be nothing in comparison to the man who was, who was known after God's own heart. The man that pursued God with great passion like David. But you know what happens right after this? You continue on to read and 
It says in verse 8, And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You know what he said? I don't understand you, God. And so you can stay right there. I'll leave you where you're at. And God's presence does what God's presence does. It blesses. And Obed-Edom was a beneficiary of that blessing. It's important for us to know, important for us while we go through this study. You know why we, we desire to be so biblical? It's because God will show us characteristics of himself that will make us angry and will make us afraid of who he is. God will allow you. He will even ordain for you and I to go through things that will make us afraid of him and will make us fearful of him and even angry with him. You know why? Because he's holy. And when we come through the other side of that, as David did, it's then when you begin to see David dancing he danced when the Ark of the Covenant came into, the, in, into Jerusalem. So I told that worship pastor, I said, young man, until you lead your people to see God as holy, they will never worship him in the manner of unrestrained, undignified worship as Michal thought of her husband. You're a king. Why would you dance like that? Show some restraint. And that might be why there's a distance, potentially, even in the context of this assembly. God's hurt you. He's made you afraid. He's made you angry with him. He's shown you a different side of his character. Because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to know him. And when you begin to surrender and yield to God for all that he is, relinquish control that things need to go the way you think they should go, God may eventually set you free. To be able to worship unrestrained before him like King David. Is it alright that God would kill? And is he good if he does? I would agree with prophets from an old. I would agree with even Aaron. You don't think it hurt Aaron to see his sons instantly killed? It says he just held his peace. You think Job was offended to see his family destroyed? Children taken. I think David was mad when Uzzah was struck down. When God burst forth in anger and wrath. And when we've got a question to answer, we're going to trust the Lord in his discipline and how he disciplines others. So you see it in the Old Testament when God performs it. Well, you see it in the Old Testament when the children of God perform it. You see, when God performs it, what about when the children of God perform it? You see, first with Moses and the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 32. Moses and children of Israel, Exodus chapter 32. Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the instructions from the Lord, receiving the Ten Commandments. And in verse 25, it says this in, in Exodus 32. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. What? And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. You want to know where the Levites come from? They were willing to kill with the sword. You know who they were going to be? They eventually be the ones that take care of the temple. The ones closest to God. In proximity. Today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one of at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. 3,000 die. Now imagine the travesty of the, almost the same number of people that died in, the, in the, the Twin Towers falling. And the outrage that came as a result of that. Imagine it coming at the hand of God, through the hand of your brother, your father, your neighbor. It's much easier when God performs it, is it not? You can blame God. But how about when God commands people to do it? It's a much different conversation, is it not, when God performs discipline? What about Joshua and Achan in Joshua chapter 7? Remember they were about to, Moses had already passed away, and, and um, the, Joshua was leading people into uh, the promised land, and they, they came across Jericho. And in Jericho, God says, hey, listen, this massively fortified city, and God says, all you have to do is just obey me. I'm going to just have you to march around it. And when I tell you to shout, proclaim my glory, then the walls will will tumble down and you can go in and you can consume it. It's a really, not really the most strategic military strategy, if you begin to think about it. That's not one of the most helpful means by which to begin to think, well, that that sounds great. Let's let's, let's, let's work that way. That that sounds like it will work, God. But they simply obeyed the the voice of the Lord. And God brought deliverance. And it's in that God says, now listen, when you go, I want you to destroy everything. Man, woman, child, beast of the field, destroy it all. This will be a tithe unto me. First fruits, if you will. And so the instructions was not to carry any of that back. And what happened was Josh, uh, in this Achan, had stolen some of the bounty and brought it back and put it in his tent. As they begin to walk through the process, they go to another battle. It was a much smaller city, the city of Ai. And so they thought, man, this is, we don't need to take as many men. And so they only took a much smaller contingency and then went on to fight. And they lost the battle severely and many people died. They all were frustrated. And even Joshua is thinking, God, what's happening? And God begins to speak to him and it says, get up. Why is your face fallen? Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before the enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have devoted. They become devoted for destruction. I will, I will be with you no more unless you destroy devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Uh, for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. 
gives them instruction what to do. Eventually, the lot falls upon Achan and his family. They remove Achan, his wife, his children, the devoted things, even his, his cattle, take him outside and stone him and burn him and his family. Seems intense, doesn't it? Same thing with Nathan. But when the children of God perform discipline and confront sin, you know the story of David and Bathsheba. God sends the prophet Nathan to David and gives him a scenario. The scenario was exactly what David had done to Uriah the Hittite and taking his wife and then killing him, having him killed. But he puts it in a story form, and David burns with wrath and anger against this person in the story. And Nathan turns to him and says, you are the man. Discipline formed from the children of God. Yes, Moses and the Levites. Yes, Joshua and the leadership there. Yes, Nathan to David. All in the Old Testament, pictures of discipline of the Old Testament. So is it biblical? It clearly is in the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? New Testament discipline. You see, number one, New Testament is something that God performs, just like it was in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira basically sold a piece of property, kept back a certain portion of the property for themselves, but began to communicate what it was sold for. And ultimately, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, strikes down Ananias and Sapphira at different times as they both lie to the Holy Spirit of God and to the people of God. It says it brought fear, just like it did with Nadab and Abihu with Uzzah, with the children of Israel, with the children of Israel, with Joshua and Achan, even King David. Brought fear. But it said, did it hinder the work of God? No, it says that more and more people were coming to faith in Christ. And that's fire. What about individual members of the body that God performs? It's what I read to you earlier about Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, where God disciplines those he loves. Those are disciplines that God performs. What about New Testament discipline that the church of God performs? You saw the children of God performing in the Old Testament. Now, what about the church of God performing it in the New Testament? Well, clearly you see instructions from Jesus that we've read today. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. I believe that's clear indication that it's biblical. You see discipline at the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We'll talk a little bit more of that in the, in probably next week. Simply there is a man was sleeping with his father's wife, probably his stepmom. And the Bible begins to speak about discipline. He needed to be excommunicated immediately. See, bearing one another's burdens at Galatia, Galatians chapter 6, 1, and 1 through 2. Warning at Thessalonica for those who were being idle and lazy and creating division in the context of that particular passage, how there was uh, discipline needed to be brought there. You see shipwrecked faith in, uh, in Ephesus in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, chapter 22. Individuals listed a name there who, who had wandered from the faith or shipwrecked their faith, and there's discipline brought there. And then division in Crete. There was some division that had taken place. And in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, the church of God is expected to perform church Discipline, And so to answer the question, is it biblical? Do we see examples of it in the Bible? Yes. Old Testament, you see God performing it. New Testament, you see God performing it. Old Testament, you see the children of God performing it. New Testament, you see the church of God, the people of God, the children of God performing it, both in the New and the Old Testament. What is the practice then of church discipline? What is this thing that we're carrying out? Well, you see it in two forms. One of the forms is exactly what I'm doing this morning right now. You think, what? Yes, formative discipline. Formative discipline. 
And we know this for a variety of other passages. Ephesians chapter 6, one through one, uh, chapter 4, which talks about parents to raise their children in the wisdom or the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Instruction and discipline. And so it's this instruction that's given that's formative. That part of the means by which keeping your kids out of trouble, that they don't have to be corrected, is to give them instructions on what's proper and what's right. So this is exactly what we're doing this morning. Formative discipline. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, where it talks about the variety of leaders within the church equipping the saints for the work of ministry. For the edification, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's formative discipline. We're warning you. We're preparing you so that you don't walk in, in ways that are sinful. It's what we do week in and week out. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, that we would maintain this confession that we have together, that as we would join together, we would edify the body of Christ, that we'd begin to build up, stir up good works one to another in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of God dwell richly in you, that we would address one another in spiritual songs and hymns. And, and so this is a picture again and again and again of teaching and instruction, which is a form of discipline formative discipline it's not always negative or at least appear to be negative i would even say the corrective discipline which is our second point here isn't negative either i think it's loving and so the two forms is formative discipline and then yes corrective discipline and corrective yes typically takes on the more negative connotation as we we've seen and, and looked at to where people would are being called out they're being publicly rebuked and this is exactly what we see uh, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and se- through 17. For brother sins against you, you go to your brother, you and him alone, and, and you confront that particular sin. And if he turns and repents of that, you've won your brother. You've won your brother. Corrective discipline. So that's the practice of church discipline. What is the purpose of church discipline? What's the purpose of church discipline? First of all, I believe one of the purposes of discipline is discipline is loving. It's loving. You see there in your notes, it's a love for the individual. That, that that individual, he or she might be warned and brought to repentance. Think about that. If an individual is walking in unrepentant sin, is it not loving to warn them? To caution them? First John chapter 3 would begin to communicate. I mean, you're walking in known sin and a person who who deliberately sins and continues to practice sinfulness, the seed of God is not in you. We want to warn you. And so it's loving to the individual who's being rebuked, who's being confronted, that he or she might be warned and brought to repentance, that we would expose sin, that we would warn against that particular sin, that we'd begin to save them from that particular sin. And then we'll allow them just to continue to walk in, in habitual sin, that the Bible would begin to demonstrate that there would be no... Um, confidence there's no assurance of their salvation if they continue to walk in that blatant unrepentant serious sin and so it's loving for the individual number two it's loving for it's a love for the church so it's a love for the individual it's a love for the church how's it loving to the church that weaker sheep might be protected the weaker sheep might be protected don't walk in that manner and weaker sheep to be able to protect. This is why they asked in First John. Remember the whole written, the letter is written so they would be able to be made aware, made known that ultimately that, that those who left them, those who are not of us, were actually really not, uh, who were not with us are not of us. I talked to my children, talked to my, my, my family, talked to our faith family to be able to say, hey, they're not with us because they weren't really of us. And so we confront sin to be able to protect the weaker sheep. It's a love for the individual. It's a love for the church. It's a love for the watching world that it might see Christ transforming 
power. First Corinthians chapter five. Remember that passage that I spoke to earlier about um, um, the individual that was known, the discipline that was at uh, the church in Corinth there where the man was sleeping with his father's wife. And it says that even in the, in the secular world, even in the unregenerate world, this, this sin's not even common. This hypocrisy needs to be removed. There's a watching world that's trying to determine whether or not this is legitimate. And is that not the criticism we hear again and again and again? The reason we don't come to church is because there's hypocrites. There's a watching world that it might see the transforming power of God. And it's loving, not only because it's a love for the individual, the church, the watching world, but it's a love for Christ. That churches might uphold his holy name and obey him. As 1 Timothy chapter 3 begins to speak of that we were a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The world is looking at us. And if we are the body of Christ, they, we are the tangible, physical manifestation of who God is in this world. And so it's discipline is loving. Number two, discipline honors God. We'll just go through these briefly, quickly, and then we'll hit one more question and we'll be finished. Discipline is not only loving, discipline honors God. It's biblical. Clearly, we've seen it all throughout these passages that I've alluded to. It's an implication of the gospel. If we say that Christ has tr- radically transformed our lives and he is now Lord, then there needs to be a consistency that lines up with that confession, that profession of faith. And so it's an implication of the gospel. It's implying that our lives should be distinct and be different. It promotes the health of the church. As 1 Corinthians 5 sp- speaks of that, man, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And so they asked to remove that guy who was sleeping with his stepmom so that he doesn't contaminate the whole loaf, the entire body. So it promotes the health of the church. It clarifies and burnishes the church's witness before the nations, as we've already alluded to before. It warns sinners of an even greater judgment to come. Several times as we look through these passages that we'll continue to study next week, it continues to talk about, um, I've turned them over to Satan. That they might be saved, that their soul might be saved. It warns the sinner of even greater judgment to come, that there's still time for them to repent. And most importantly, it protects the name and reputation of Jesus Christ on the earth. Well, then last question we'll ask this morning before we, we close up our time. Why should a church practice discipline? Why should it? Number one, for the glory of God. That's seen in our obedience, that we know God's word, we obey God's word, his will and his ways. And he's instructed us to do it. So simple obedience to him, to the honor and glory of our king, for the glory of God. But then, as we've seen before, that there's individuals that are could be helped. The body of Christ could be helped. The watching world could be helped. Christ would be glorified, as we've seen. And so it's not only for the glory of God, it's for the good of others. It's for the glory of God. It's for the good of others. And so as we, we think through this, this is why we would even begin to discuss church discipline. Because it's serious. God has in the past and is in the present serious about sin. So serious about sin that the Bible speaks of God as our just judge. The Bible speaks in 2 Corinthians as the terror of of the Lord. Do we really believe the rest of the book? I think Jason quoted from us from the book of Revelation. Do you know how Jesus will return? Not a 
little baby in a manger. He will return with the sword. And he will bring judgment and justice upon this earth. Until that time, he's granted grace. Second Peter chapter 3 begins to talk about how God is not slack concerning his promises. But the time that he's granted is because he desires for all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of truth. He desires that repentance would be granted. And he's left us here for that express purpose. To be his hands, to be his feet, the very local assembly, the very body of Christ that we've talked about before. And so the holiness of this body is extremely important, as it was with the children of the Old Testament, the children of God, the Old Testament, as it is with the children of God of the New Testament. So I believe the body of Christ and the church discipline that would take place in the body of Christ is loving. I believe it's kind. I believe it's not legalistic. And I believe it's utterly biblical. The question is, will we now obey that process? And that's what we'll spend our time studying next week. But in that, I want us just to take a moment and begin to think back, think through this process. I ask Jason to go ahead and make his way up here. And I'm just going to pray for us. Lead us in the time of just invitation. This invitation is going to be a little different than we have. We're going to allow a chance just to be able to respond. And the song that's been chosen is, God is sovereign over us. And there's a variety of means, I believe, that the Spirit of God's ordained and allowed this morning for us to talk. I know we're talking about church discipline and the very practice and how we're going to walk through that and the very functionality of that we'll talk about next week. But sometimes once we begin to look at is, is this. Are you okay with the God who disciplines? Are you okay with Him? And if you're not okay with that God, can I ask you then to take a time and turn from that desire to control, to repent of that? Desiring to lord over, for you to be lord of your life? Are you like David? Has there come a point in time where you've seen a side of God that you've never seen before? And you're you're just holding on to it. You're white knuckled. Because you really don't believe God is good. You really don't believe God is good. And that discipline is because you're a legitimate child of his. And he loves you and he's disciplined you. For peace and for holiness. As Hebrews 12 speaks of. And I would implore you this morning. To see God in the sovereignty. And that God is. He is in control. He did allow. Hear me. Hear me. Very clearly. Whatever that is. That just kicked you in the soul. He allowed it. And he ordained it. Before the foundations of the world. It was on the calendar of your life. He ordained it. Are you okay with that? And if not. I implore you. And then it's prayer time. You ask God to begin to help you to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, and to trust him. And when that time where you were utterly brought low, and just like the Spirit of God said to Joshua, get up. Why is your face falling? Get up. Consecrate yourself. Tomorrow God's going to do a work in us. I implore you. God humbles you, you would get up. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 would say, you would behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus in the gospel. And you would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. 
be conformed to the very image of Christ. And then just like David, you would call for the very presence of God to be in your life all the time. I want him to be near me. And he danced for the glory of God. Oh, how it might transform our songs and our singing. How it might transform this local little assembly of God called Cherokee Baptist Church. If we would dance undignified for the glory of our King. You may say, well, Pastor, that's not me. And I would say, praise the Lord. And is there some sin that you need to address? I'll touch it next week, but I'll just briefly talk about it this way. Matthew 18 speaks of the offended party going to the offender. Right? If your brother sinned against you. Luke just speaks of if your brother sins, and even speak of whether it's to you or not, it's about a sinning brother. Galatians 6 says the same thing. Individuals called in sin to those who are spiritual to restore them. Right? But then she say, man, if you know of sin, then I, you need to help us confront it. The holiness of the church is important. The Bible says it. But it's not only for the offended party to be able to confront. The Bible would speak in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. If you come to bring worship before an altar and you have offended someone, leave the gift there. Don't even provide the sacrifice and go and get right with your brother or your sister in Christ. So the offending party has a responsibility. And so neither one's off the hook. The offended party needs to confront. The offending party or the, the offended party needs to confront. And the party who is the offender needs also to be able to look and continue to ask God as Bart led us to examine me, search me, oh God, see if there's any wicked way in me. And so that's our invitation. Any offenses that you need to confront? Any sin? And hear me. Here's of late. Here's of late. Let me just walk by example. That's all I've been doing here as of late. Is addressing either offenses or pursuing those who have offended. Has it been pleasant, Pastor? No. Has it been purposeful, Pastor? Yes. And amen. God is doing a work. And if there is a question, Pastor, why have our numbers dwindled? Here's a recent days. Let me answer it for you. Judgment begins at the house of God. God hates his pastor. Is that what you're saying? Mm-mm. You missed the whole word I started with. Is it unloving? Hebrews says it's because God loves us that God has a plan for us. He's, do you not know when you look up here, there's a wretched, wretched sinner saved by grace sitting before you. See these behind me? Sinners. They don't look like it. They're pretty people, but they are sinners behind me. But we've been redeemed, and God is now in the process of sanctification, conforming my sinful self into the very image of Christ. And that's not an easy process. You don't believe it? My beautiful wife just sitting right here. It looks like just one another, another one of the kids on the front row, but that, one of these is my wife. She'll tell you as such. He's a sinner. She's deeply in love with the sinner, and I'm grateful for that. But sinner nonetheless. And he's not done with me. And he's not done with you. And since Bart said and communicated, we're, this church is simply a co- compilation and composed of its individual parts. He's not finished with you yet either. And that's great news. And so however God needs, 
spoken to you this morning through his glorious word and by his, his gracious spirit. I ask for us to just respond to that. And then these guys are going to lead us in one song. And I encourage you to worship over God's sovereignty, to rest in that fact that he's not forgotten us. Father, thank you. For- hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.